welcome back to The Aryan and the Jew. I am Aaron Flam, and today we continue our discussion with Alexander Bard. I also want to remind you that Alexander Bard's new book with Jan Söderqvist, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, has finally come out. So you can always buy that online or in a bookstore. Now, Alexander Bard. Enjoy. We've been talking a lot. The first day you completely, uh, like a truck, just drove over me. And yesterday I managed to get a few words in, and today I hope we'll get even more words in. Uh, and There's I... also an alternative name for this podcast. And that is? Oh, the Jewish Nietzsche and the Aryan Freud. <laughs> and then you can try to figure out who's who, right? Sometimes it's not that easy, mm-hmm. actually, with you. Uh, and uh, yesterday we talked about uh, how the philosopher should be right, but should definitely be interesting. And we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about archetypes. But we're going to start with uh, the headline, Sweden is going to shit. <laughs> it's a wonderful Swinglish title, isn't it? Sweden is going to shit. I hope English-speaking people understand what that means. Um, it is basically Sweden is going downhill, right? Yes. Rapidly. Precisely. So what is happening right now in Sweden is that we now have evidence, more and more evidence, that the gender studies departments at Swedish universities have now become the formal institutions of the state ideology. Yes. Meaning that you cannot conduct anything any longer in Sweden. And it's not like only- running an institution. Not even the military can be run any longer without you being forced to go through a gender studies education. And it's not only that facts are starting to come out, because facts have been there for a long time. It's just that they've been suppressed as well, and they keep suppressing them. Mm. Uh, and we saw evidence of this this morning when you came in here, and I was watching Twitter, and someone had done a Lindsay che- Shepherd type thing. You remember this... Uh, North American yeah. girl who was censored by her university for just for just referring to Jordan Peterson. Yes, and 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 in in Lindsay's case, I mean, in, in Canada when this came out, this became in the states, this became a, became a huge thing, and because they understand freedom of speech. But here in Sweden, we've had this for a very long time, and people don't really understand that we have this, and Swedes don't really care about this deeply, but. Anyway, we've got our own Lindsay Shepherd now. We have a student at Kotihuar, absolutely foremost institute of technical learning. I think the learning. Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but in Scandinavia, and you understand the prominence of the KTH. Yes. So like Sweden is an engineering culture. It, it's an industrial powerhouse, meaning the KTH and the other one, which is Chalmers, which is in Gothenburg, but KTH is in Stockholm, is the leading institute, polytechnical institute in Scandinavia. And, and you wouldn't think this, but actually a few women running a gender studies department has essentially taken over the entire institution and then are forcing everybody to abide with their rules. And their rules are essentially totalitarian. Yes. Meaning that you have to buy into a totalitarian Rousseauian state ideology that believes that all men and women are born as tabula rasas. Like there's no difference at all between men and women. And we can then shape these boys and girls into our ideals, which is some weird kind of sort of transgender neutral kind of identity where everything is it's resorted to quotas. It's just like quotas. So female and male bodies are sort of quoted 
quoted into whatever environment they're involved with. It's really weird. It's really sick. Yes, and in Sweden, it's been going on longer than in any other country on Earth. We've had gender pedagogy, as it's called, uh, in our school system since the early 90s. Yes. And it's just taken over everything. And what's happened in this particular case, we've had... uh, uh, as far as I can gather, there's a student called Felix. And, and he has referred to facts. Uh, He's no, presented uh, facts online, nothing else. He's no, presented no. certain facts, yeah, right? well, well, As far as I can tell, what happened is he had a discussion with some feminists in his class. And he said, well, uh, I have pr- uh, immigrants commit more sexual violence in Sweden than native Swedes. That was his stance. And that is considered a racist stance in Sweden. Uh, and the girls were upset with him and they said, uh, well, can't you get some proof? And uh, regardless of Felix being a racist or not, he compiled the proof and he was right. Using so, state institutions statistics to do so. As well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So he was right. He presented the facts and then he was called in to the office of the administrators, two middle class white women probably, Mm -hmm. if I know my Swedes correctly. Yeah. Uh, And they told him that he wasn't allowed to uh, spread this type of facts. Because somebody was offended with it. Yes. Which is ridiculous. Not only... Not only are these administrators incredibly powerful in this sort of wicked way, they have a power they should never have in the first place. We, We shouldn't have any sort of ideological control of students to begin with. Students should just be allowed to practice free speech like just about anybody. I mean, you're a student because you're studying a certain topic. You're studying to become an engineer. You should be allowed to have any sort of political opinion you want. You certainly should be allowed to do anything in your spare time that you'd like to do. The school should not have any opinion on that whatsoever. It should not interfere in your private life at all. But these women have not only become powerful by being in these positions and by guilt, you know, guilt tripping, you know, people out there, they they, they sort of, they get these positions by forcing other people to these positions, not allowing them to actually have an opinion against it. So it's like a very manipulated technology they use to get to where they're at. And once they have these positions, they then don't take responsibility for what they do. The scary thing is that this was wiretapped and it was then dropped out in the public using social media. So you could listen to the conversations where these tyrannical monsters of women are going after the student. And this is funny. And attacking him personally for only practicing his own right to freedom of speech, even based on factual reality. And this is funny because you and I, we found this on Twitter and Mm. we listen to it and we hear how this uh, female administrator tells this young male student that, no, you cannot say whatever you want. And that's not the case just at KTH, the technical institute he studied at this is true all over sweden what kind of country does this woman live in she pretends and believes sweden is north korea yes literally yes i'm not we're not overdoing it when when we this is exactly her argument and the tragedy she's saying that free speech does not exist in the society where you live yes and there's a meta tragedy on top of this tragedy because we found this via Twitter, and Twitter had found it via an alt-right site. So you have to so, go to alt-right websites in Sweden these days to find news that actually should be in the mainstream media and should be top of the headlines at the Yes, moment. because we have, we have less uh, uh, big dailies than most other democratic countries. Yeah. That should be said. And they're all politically correct in Sweden. All politically correct. I mean, so we, they're all fake news. So one of, the biggest, all of them fake news. one of the biggest dailies in Sweden is um, Dagens Nyheter. They have a cooperation with New York Times, where they exchange gender articles and stuff and translate. But they have gender robots. 
robots to have heard. Yes, and now, now they have a gender robot and they, that they've programmed to tell all their writers how much they mention men and women in their articles, regardless of what they're writing about. And because, yeah, it's just silly. So Mina, they, you cannot write an article about ISIS, for example, without dropping as many female names in the articles as male names you in the article, for example. You, ha you have to. You there's have no to. difference between powerful women and, say, page three pinup girls. No, no, you no. You have to drop as many female names in articles as you drop male names in articles, or otherwise you get banned by the newspaper, right? And the gender robot is supposed to do this. It's probably the most idiotic innovation ever. Yes, no, no, it's completely, but, but the tragedy here is that Dagens Nyheter, they should be the ones reporting about stuff like this, that freedom of speech is being curtailed by university administrator, administrators, which is basically the state because all our institutions yeah. are state financed. You have state financed university administrators who persecute their own students and attack their own students saying free speech does not exist in the society in which they live. It's ridiculous. This is going on in Sweden at the moment. So you have these gender studies departments that literally are taking over one institution after the other. You cannot, for example, make a film any longer in Sweden and get any sort of financing for making a film without you first being forced to take a course in Rosoyan, North Korean gender studies totalitarianism, which you then have to practice yeah. afterwards. You have to buy into that ideology to be able to publish a film script. That, that is Sweden in 2019. Yeah, I know. And, and what's sad is, I think KTH, as an institution of learning, it's been in the eyes of the elite and uh, mainstream media, it's been a problem for a long time because it's male-dominated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think the, uh, the program to become a chemist is the one that has the most females, and it has 30% females in that particular program and and the rest is uh, male dominated because it's engineering it's technical it's physics it's maths and it's abstract yes and sweden sweden is uh, under something you could call the gender paradox which is the more freedom you have the more you see the respective genders on a group level return to what they're best at you so you see more women in you nursing could even and call more it a segregation paradox because what actually happens is that when you give people freedom they go more segregated yeah we we love segregation if we were allowed to we actually segregate ourselves so if you're going to have a society with lots of different ethnicities and different personality types to try to live together in one place we're going to discover that people prefer to live in segregated environments so we have to accept that that's how huge cities have always looked you had the Jewish quarters there. You had the Chinese quarters over there. You had the Roman quarters over there. You had the Greek quarters over there. People live segregated. They do that if they're given the choice. Yes, but you can still have a secular system and, yes. and factions that aren't at war with each other if, if the system allows for cooperation you know, between the groups. And you can have equality before the law. Yes. Which is what's important. Exactly. But unfortunately in Sweden, we don't really have that, do we? And apparently for Felix at Kotihua, he found out the hard way, didn't he? He did, but he's going to be here eventually once we're through with all this because we really have to bring these tyrannical monsters, these sort of university administrators who do nothing but run around as sort of political police, police forces. They're just like, they're Stalinists. They really are. And they should just all be fired. The, the university should not have an ideology police to begin with. And a student must understand that if you get offended by something, you should be offended. Yes, but you should be offended. It, it's your shit to deal with. Your feelings are not facts. Your own feelings is something you have to deal with yourself. You're not a grown up unless you can deal with your own feelings. And if something feels hurtful to you, it's probably because you should hear it and it should be hurtful to you because without free speech, we're nothing. 
Yes, and this gender paradigm, it's sort of, uh, it permeates everything in Sweden. Yeah. So, KTH was a problem, that was my point, because it's a male bastion, and mm. they hate male bastions, they want to feminize KTH now. Mm. So that's why they're really pushing for this. And then we see the same thing going through our police, where mm -hmm. you can actually become recruited as a police chief just for being a female. Well, it's hard to become a police unless you're politically correct. And it's certainly impossible to become a boss of the Swedish police force unless you're politically correct. It's all politically motivated these days, if you get a top job there. And then we have the army, which has been downsized since the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And, and instead and, of and buying we weapons, and yeah. instead of investing time in educating future soldiers so we can defend the country, the army is now throwing all its resources into gender studies departments. Yeah. Which is, it's like, wait a second, what was the point of having an army in the first place? The point of having an army is that we do have a border. That border needs to be protected. And we also have to foresee that threats could appear in the future that far worse than anything we perceive today. So you have to prepare the army for that because you can't just suddenly build an army in a few weeks. It takes years to build a proper army. And you need investments in doing that. And suddenly the army has become something completely different. It just become another stage for this pathetic theater of gender studies totalitarianism. Which is ironically, the ironic thing is that we call it gender studies when it's really about the evaporation and destruction of I gender. have an example uh, from the army, if you want to know. So uh, Sweden had a contingent, uh, had a troop in Afghanistan mm -hmm. under, I think, UN flag. Yeah. Uh, and uh, A platoon. Yes, yeah. precisely. And in these platoons, they had something called MOTTs or something, MOTs, which is a mobile team that goes out to talk with the indigenous population and, you know, win hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Usually these groups consist of male soldiers mm -hmm. because in Afghanistan, people don't really talk to women if they're tribal elders. Well, you don't see much women because they're usually locked up. Yes, precisely. Yeah. The inner circuit is certainly an inner circuit. It's basically a locked up building with walls around it. So the Swedish army had this idea that they should put a, a team together, a mot together, consisting of three female Swedish officers. Mm -hmm. And they should get a female interpreter and they should go out and talk to Afghan women. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe not a bad idea. Who knows, right? Anyway, they went out, they talked to as much women as they could. Uh, I don't think they could talk to that much women. They came back. It was hailed as a public relations success. We now have the key to unlocking gender equality in Afghanistan. And then they left and they never repeated the mission. If it was such a big success, shouldn't that be a continuous program? It's constantly... And it, what happened to the interpreter, it's, it's do you think? This female interpreter sort of who had the to The Palace serve. of Versailles going on. It's just, per, it's just performance. Yes. Empty performance with no substance whatsoever. And it's pretending to be important. When in reality it's just performance, it's just media performance. It's nothing else. It's just a waste of energy, waste of time, waste of resources. It leads to absolutely no change at all. And if it leads to any change, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. And then intersectionality and gender together says that you can never point your finger at someone, say, let's say that uh, Somali immigrants do, as a group, sell more heroin in Stockholm. Maybe they do. They also drive more cabs and work harder than yeah. native Swedes do, yes. for example, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so but, if you but, get but, the facts, the facts could be very favorable, too. We should, we should remember that. No, no, no. no. But they got, they got everything to gain from knowing themselves their factual reality, and we got everything to gain when we go into relationships between these different groups, these ethnic groups in society. We, we try to create a society where we can all live together, right? What we need to do is to get to the factual reality of things. By yes. saying that this is, you're not even allowed to go there, you're more or less saying that that is so bad in there. 
So you cannot even allow to get the facts out there, which only makes things worse, of course. Absolutely, and that's my point here, because in England a few years ago, there was a PC media and PC police, basically, but a real police force. They suppressed that uh, Pakistani rape gangs were, you know, going around raping women. Mm-hmm. Mm. This has been going on in Sweden, not Pakistanis specifically, I'm not pointing fingers at any group, but we've had an enormous rise in rapes. Mm-hmm. And this has been suppressed and suppressed and suppressed and suppressed, and they're still suppressing it. Mm-hmm. So we don't get well, the we're facts. busy with Me Too, you see. Y- precisely. That's so we're not the busy answer. with real rape, we're busy with, we're busy with women he- hearing nasty things and being upset and offended about that, and they're all p- petit bourgeois women. And they hear that from petit bourgeois men in their workplaces. And that's their main concern. They're not really concerned with immigrant girls getting raped or anything like that at all. Why would they? Or Swedish girls, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Why would they care? Because you can't point at at immigrants and say they cause the rapes, right? You can't say that the immigrant gangs are causing these rapes. And some of these rapes have obviously racist motives. Because you can be a racist. They're outside the law to begin with because they run the cannabis trade in Sweden. So say you got the bourgeois kid who wants to smoke a joint and he lives in this posh neighborhood. So he just takes his car and he drives out to the suburb and he buys cannabis because he knows it's available and there's a market for it in the suburb and the police don't dare to go in there in the first place and they don't focus on getting the cannabis traders, right? Well, okay, then you create a separate economy. Now, if you're the guy who sells cannabis in the suburb, this is your main income. This is the easiest way for you to make money. You might drive an Uber now and then as well, but you have to make money. You know, you want to buy stuff and you want to impress on the girls so you can get married one day. So you already placed outside of the law. So to begin with, just like in the United States, if you want to get rid of most of the social problems you have today, the first thing to do is to legalize the drug trade. It would help everybody. It would create a dynamic that recognizes that there is a drug trade to begin with in society, and there always will be. Now, why don't we then put it inside the white economy and take it away from the black economy? Why don't we start taxing it and make it income for the government? Why don't we also allow the guys who run this trade and who produce the cannabis and then sell it to make good money out of it and also pay you know, for their own pensions in the future and to pay for school fees for the children? No, we don't. We create a massive separate economy outside of the regular economy. And once you're outside the law, you have no respect for the law. Why would you? Yeah. And I think we should explain also to the foreign listener that Sweden took to the war on drugs like no other Western country in the world. I mean, Sweden had a, a pretty minor drug problem. Yeah. And then when the war on drugs came, what, what, what we might have had is an alcohol problem might have. But I should point out also that the Swede's attitude to alcohol has always been more hysterical than his actual use of alcohol. Yes. Yes. So there is a moral panic when it comes to drugs in general. And this is the cultural drug of Sweden is alcohol. And then new drugs come in from the 20s and onwards with jazz musicians, for instance. Yes. And, and then other drugs come in like amphetamines and heroin. And, and, and the reaction in Sweden was a moral panic the likes you don't really see in other countries because this was so homogenous, this country, and only, so conformist. Only arousal and so, in itself was deemed evil. Yes. Just, just, just having any form of arousal was deemed evil. It's like there's, there's a worship of sobriety. It's really, really sick in this culture. To begin with, sobriety does not exist. Your brain is essentially chemical and hormonal. Yes. You're on to or off something all the time, constantly. 
dopamine, serotonin, all these hormones are basically your brain's own drugs to begin with. If you don't recognize the fact that no such thing as sobriety, you're in the wrong to begin with. We've written about this a lot, John Sadekist and I, and the myth of sobriety. There's no such thing as sobriety to begin with. But if that myth does exist and people tend to believe in it and they're not allowed to question it, then the next thing is that, well, then you're drunk or you're high, and if you're drunk or you're high, you're evil. No matter whether you're drunk or high in a fun way or in a good way or a creative way, not harming anybody. It's the act itself. That's it's the act itself. Yes. It's a state. Yeah, and it's a state of mind that's deemed immoral in Swedish society. That creates enormous problems because you can no longer differentiate between the bad high or the good high, the destructive high or the, or, or the constructive high for that matter. I mean, if you take psychedelics and you're an artist, you probably do it because you want inspiration for your new artworks. And you probably do better works of art because of it, right? Yes. In my case, that's absolutely, absolutely. true. And we only take drugs outside of Sweden. Yes, so you should remind we, the listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. We do, but outside of Sweden. So then, of course, if you take opioids to get rid of pain, well, you might want to do that if you just had surgery. But if you do it routinely for weeks and suddenly for months, you become an opiate addict. And that's exactly why the United States and Sweden has this enormous problem with people who die from opiate addiction. Because we banned it, we criminalized it. We persecute people who take opiates, and it gets worse. Yes, and we have one of the highest uh, deaths among addicts we have one in the, the Western rates. world. Yes, we do. About 600 per year in a country of 10 million. America now has 67,000 opiate deaths per year, and it's rising, meaning America in 2018, for the third year in a row, has a lower average uh, uh, longevity than the year before. I mean, now we, we've lived longer and longer and longer for decades, and suddenly in America, that's not turned around. And people live shorter and shorter in America. And the main cause for this is the mass death of opiate abuse. The new synthetic opiates now coming out of China are 50 times more powerful than heroin. That means you can smuggle your entire annual dosage, your entire need for an entire year just in your own pocket. Now, that's an easy thing to do. And this is really evil. The, the massive problem we're going to have with drugs over the next few decades is going to be opiate abuse on a massive scale. Now, maybe we should then focus our resources on that. Maybe we should fight that because it is a tragedy every time somebody becomes an opiate addict because basically it's the end of their life. They just get stuck with the opiates. And, and opiates don't really inspire you to do anything. They just take away the pain so you can go numb. Yeah. They turn you into an infantile. It's the ultimate evil form of a mamilla or a tit given to a grown-up person. So it's the ultimate drug for Sweden, really. That's exactly why opiates are so widely used in Sweden, why we have such a huge problem with opiate abuse in Sweden. But instead of focusing on that, the Swedes are going after any drug, yep. any experimental drug, MDMA. Well, MDMA is not remotely a problem on the scale of the opiates. And actually, MDMA could even be useful. There's a lot of couple therapy we could get rid of if we used MDMA a little more wisely. And, and people are discovering psychedelics. We should not have been involved with narcotics to begin with. Psychedelics and narcotics have nothing to do with each other. There's no, there's, there's no, there's no relation between psychedelics and opiates. They're used for totally different reasons by totally different people. And of course, this cannabis, the most common drug of all. It's just as common as alcohol these days in Sweden. But we still allow alcohol and run it and sell it through a state system where it's highly taxed. And still have problems dealing with alcoholism, which is a massive epidemic in Sweden. Whereas we ban cannabis. Now, if anything is racist in Swedish society, it's the fact that alcohol is legal and permitted as cannabis is criminalized. That's pure racism to me. Yeah. Cannabis just happens to come from Southern Europe to Sweden, whereas alcohol came from Eastern Europe. That's the only difference between the two. Yes, but also how the Swedish Swedes reacted to this perceived problem of drugs. They yeah. reacted like they were a... Baptist Church in the American Moralism. South. 
moralism. Yeah. Yes, uh, it was a hallelujah thing that went on for decades. And it starts with the mythology that we were all drunk in the 1830s and the 1840s when the Swedish temperance movement was born. Like if everybody was drunk everywhere, so priests no longer had people going to the churches, suddenly turned around and became these sort of temperance preachers. And, and the temperance movement was then allied with the working class movement, unfortunately, in Sweden. So that became like one, one of the same thing. And we were very, very close in the 1920s towards banning alcohol and going into prohibition. And we know from the United States what incredible harm to society prohibition did. America still lives today with an organized crime that's nothing but the result of prohibition in the 1920s and 1930s. It was one of the most disastrous political mistakes ever. Sweden was close to it, but instead of banning alcohol, rather controlling alcohol, the Swedes went after all the other drugs, every one of them. Meaning you ban something in Sweden, you criminalize it, you put heavy penalties on it without even knowing what it is. Yes, and when you say go after the drugs, you mean drug users and drug addicts, because that's what you have to do. You can't put a, a bag of heroin or cocaine in the jail, jail cell, it doesn't care. You have to actually go after the people who use it, so it becomes a war on people. Well, you can look at Portugal and Sweden. The Portuguese are very wise. So in 2004, Portugal more or less legalized drugs. What happens is that you get caught with drugs, say in the street of Lisbon. So the police will give you a little ticket and give you a little name of a social worker and say that you need to go and see the social worker within the next two or three weeks, so otherwise we'll come and arrest you. Then we criminalize you for this behavior. But you actually have a chance to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So you can stay within the legal realm, which of course you do. Okay. So what then happens is that Sweden today has almost 600 deaths from opioid abuse per year, the same population as Portugal. Portugal has 16. Now, if that isn't evidence of Portugal having found a successful system, a successful way of dealing with the problem that you just have to deal with in the most pragmatic way possible, whereas the Swedes are still principled about this. They love their moralism. They're high on their moralism, meaning they lead a very destructive policy. And actually what's scary about it, the Swedes don't care that people are dying because of Swedes stupidity. And that's also what's interesting about... There's a lack of when, compassion because It's a very a, cold society. Sw Sweden is a country that has principles, because I, I, I often... They love the principles more than they love people. Yes, but that's the thing with our principles. We have very few principles in Sweden. We have värdegrund, which loosely translates to... Ideology, actually. Yes. Value platform. Yes, huh? but it's not a principled platform because we don't have absolutes. We're more relativist and more pragmatist. So what works is more important than why it works for Swedes. Because There's, we're into fads more than anything. And there could be a so fad see, of opinion. But and, and the fad could change next week. And then I better change my opinion. Exactly. Too. So when we get a principle, the principle itself is important. Why we have the principle is not important in the least. So no. we have this principle about no one should take narcotics. We even have what we call a zero vision and swedes love zero wish vision. zero tolerance yeah yeah but we yeah, have zero vision yeah, yeah we, we it should not exist no it should not exist and remember remember who it is that says that i don't like this i want it banned and i want it to disappear from view it's the princess yes it's a very feminine approach to reality and the funny thing is in Sweden is that this, this took hold in feminism in Sweden, the, the sort of princess attitude towards life, like, I don't like this, it should be banned, it should uh, it's, it, it's disappear from view, so I don't have to see it. And when you say something like that, and that's an argument in a discussion, the response should always be, yeah, but do you know what the cost would be to us socially? financially, economically, culturally? Do you know what the cost would be if you actually did ban this, if you made that a priority? Because every time that's made a priority, police resources 
legal resources are completely focused on this nonsense. Yes. And that's what instead of telling the princess, you have to see it. It's going to be there. People will take drugs. You don't have to, but other people will. They're going to live in the same society that you live in. People will say things that you don't like to hear. Live with it. Learn to live with it. Grow up. Understand that this is something you have to deal with. You have to deal with your own emotions when something becomes uncomfortable for you. But the fact that it's uncomfortable is not in itself an argument for you having the right to ban it with the enormous costs involved in trying to obtain that ban. This is what happens all the time. And this, of course, when we go back to, to the limitation to free speech as when the attack on free speech today, because the people who attack free speech today in Sweden with, with venomous attitude are the feminists themselves. They're attacking free speech and they're attacking with the argument, somebody was offended, which is always a girl, mm -hmm. a girl who refuses to become a woman. Some woman out there was offended hearing this. She didn't want to hear it. So she screamed and said, I don't want to hear this. So it has to be banned. It has to be removed from view. I should not have to see this. And suddenly everybody lets her do this. Because Everybody pretends it's all that about this is a serious keeping argument. Up appearances. It's keeping, but nobody calls her, calls her on the argument, which is like, if you don't like this, why should all of us have to pay the enormous cost involved in obtaining this ban just because you can deal with that as a grown-up woman that you actually have to see this? How about closing your eyes? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, you could. Or you pay for it. Yes. That... You pay for it. Instead of the rest of us paying for it, in rest of, instead of the police force of Sweden having to reprioritize, so instead of the Swedish police force having to chase bourgeois men for uttering words, you know, like maybe the police force should be in the, in, you know, in the suburbs where the gang rapes are going on, protecting young girls from being raped. They are in, they are not in the suburbs, but they are trying to stop the marijuana trade, not the gang rapes. Yes. The gang rapes would be politically incorrect to stop. Yes. And they miserably fail in stopping the cannabis trade. Yeah. And every policeman I talk to are just devastated because they're giving the wrong priorities. They know that alcohol abuse and they know that violence and rape are the real problems of Swedish society that police force should concentrate on because these are the real problems, especially for women. And when we say rapes, we don't mean uh, someone touching you on the thigh at a, EU, as a, at a European Union Commission dinner. No, like, and we like don't mean and we don't mean sex for people under 18 years old. The problem in Sweden is that we have a rape inflation, meaning that the category rape has not been applied on so many things that are not rape at all, that we're risking that this important word, that this horrible crime that rape really is, sort of is diluted. And Me Too, of course, was not really helpful when it came to this, because Me Too in itself made mentioning it a harsh word equal to rape. Yeah. Which, to me, is a disaster for women. An absolute disaster. I, I can't play the clip because it's in Swedish, but uh, I have, you know, one of the gatekeepers of the Swedish Me Too campaign, Tora Rydelius, uh, 1337 likes, as she's called on Instagram. She, immediately when this started, she became one of the gatekeepers for all these stories from women where they can send her. So she sits on all this information. And I saw her at the, on Aktuellt, which is our 
60 minutes or something like that. Yes, um, a news show on TV. Yeah, on state TV. We should say that it's mm -hmm. also state government controlled. And she stands there and she says, well, I think it's very important that we lump rape together with sexual harassment and just bad pickup lines because uh, they all contribute to the same feeling inside the victim that you're not a worthy human being. It's horrible. And the journalist, a female at SVT, didn't question this. Her, the, the person who was supposed to uh, be uh, debating her, an mm -hmm. older female called Ebba Witt Bratström, one of Sweden's most famous feminists for the last three decades at mm -hmm. least, uh, she didn't protest either. And I know she didn't agree with Tora. She just didn't say anything. And, and what you have there is someone on state television saying that no, I don't think we should have a, a justice system that is working and that can guarantee that people who are tried and found guilty are actually guilty. I say everyone is guilty until proven otherwise. That's what she said on state television. The mm. journalist didn't protest. Uh, her opponent didn't protest. And that's where we're at. This is why Sweden is going to this shit. This is Rousseau. Yes. This is Rousseau. By making everybody guilty, you suddenly have the right to shape them into whatever you think they should be. And this is that's when the, you whip out Marx, isn't that, it? This is when I become Marxist, yeah, because <laughs> yes. I've always become a Marxist against Rousseauans. Or rather put it this way, if you're a liberal or a social conservative, you're Mar the Marxists are your allies among the leftists. Because the Marxists will also fight for free speech and rule of law. Because Marxist society is nothing without it. Yes. So... You saw it in Sweden, about six months before we had Me Too in Sweden, we had a controversy around uh, the book fair. The book fair is a huge phenomenon taking place in Gothenburg every year, at least it used to be. And the last couple of years, a tiny little group of sort of alt-right guys called... Uh, Fria Tider. Fria Tider, yeah. I just try to have the little booth, you know. After all, we have free speech in Sweden, at least we're supposed to have them. So if you go to the book fair, there's like a general huge place for Sweden to exchange ideas uh, for authors to meet journalists, etc. So this, this is like a great sort of Scandinavian event, you know. It's both a market fair and it's a discussion forum at the same time. So you, you wouldn't think, you, you could allow to have the alt-right somewhere in the corner somewhere selling a few books to whatever fans they may have. This is probably not the key market anyway. But suddenly you have this movement in Sweden that free trader had to be forced out. Yep. Okay. So then that become the only topic for the book fair. The only one. For I two years, this was the discussion and nothing else at the book fair was discussed. And of course, what happened was the book fair killed itself. Yeah. It didn't understand that it let the demon inside by allowing a pseudo debate become the main debate. And and there you and discover the opponents that of Fria Tider, Free Times, this small Nazi outfit or whatever it is, yeah. uh, nationalist, if no nationalist, whatever. Alt right, uh, yeah. Yeah, alt right. Uh, so uh, the opponents for them being there, they are all. Maoists and Stalinists and yeah. they're communists, all of them. Yeah. And and they left to form their own book fair where, where where they didn't have to be subjected to the horror of free speech and hear differing opinions on whatever they believe. And feminists, of course. Yes. The feminists always walk out when they're and they're offended with something. Yeah. And they want to take the tax money and the resources with them wherever they go. Because they're princesses constantly, right? Today. Uh what then happened was that 
This was like about six months before Me Too hit Sweden. It, it, and I should say Me Too in Sweden. It was bad in America, but in, the, in Sweden it became disastrous. Totally failed, you know. It was uh, like a tsunami in Sweden. It was a tsunami, but also a failure. Yeah. A massive failure, you know, a, a disgrace for a women. A failure of media, a failure of women, a failure of justice. A failure for feminism. Yes, a massive failure of failure. government. And uh, a failure massive in terms of strategy as well, yes. because that strategy... Because the Me Too started, exploded in Sweden, and the first thing that happens, the unions, they are very skilled at this, they saw what was going on, they put themselves ahead of the flock and said, uh, we are the unions, we will support you, and then suddenly this is a government political thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I said we were really vulnerable because we had an official feminist government in Sweden that jumped into it right away. And you had ministers jumping on board the meter trying to write it as well, from both sides of the political spectrum too. But what's, what's important here is to note that when the controversy around the book fair happened, there were public intellectuals in Sweden who said, essentially said what I said too. They, they went out and said, wait a second, are we so damn stupid? Are we so miserable that we can't debate a few fucking Nazis? Yeah. That was What that are you scared of? These guys are wrong. We're right. Why don't you think we can win the debate? And the people who did this, the people who spoke up for free speech against the Nazis, certainly, but allowing them to be there and speak their mind so you could debate them down. The people who did that were the Marxists, the liberals, and the social conservatives. And we talked about you and I before in podcasts we did in Swedish, because I saw already then at the book fair, before me to happen, these are the new alliance. The new alliance now is for free speech and rule of law. And classically, that means the Marxists and the liberals and the social conservatives find each other, because they're all opposed to the Rousseauans. They're all opposed to value relativism. They're all opposed to the idea that your feelings are more important than the facts. They're all opposed to the idea that being offended by something is something you have to live with in a mature society. It actually makes you grow. It's not something you should be able to avoid. If you don't like something, you may not ban it. That's too costly. You may have to live with it and you have to learn to debate it down. You have to win through argumentation. You have to train yourself. You have to get educated. Yep. So the Marxists believe this, liberals believe this, and social conservatives believe this. So they suddenly were unified in Sweden. So what I saw happening around the book fair was that, okay, so the people who spoke up for keeping the book fair open and for defending free speech and stand up against the new populists, these are the guys who were prepared for me to arrive. They were not involved in the lynch mob. They stood on the side. And when the lynch mob ran amok in the streets, they suddenly started to speak up. That's why you had Osa Lindeborg, Jean Guillaume, classical old Marxist. And you had liberals like yourself, Aaron, and you had and people you? in between like myself. Yeah. I'm in both camps. And you had these people speaking up saying that, wait a second, this is just madness. This is a lynch mob. This is incredibly dangerous. And of course, you had the Jews yeah. in Sweden because they know what a program is and they know how fucking dangerous it is. Yeah. They don't like it at all. No. So they were not involved. You didn't see any Jewish names in the Me Too movement in Sweden. They stood aside. They the really only time aside. you saw a Jewish woman say something, it was against the Me Too mo movement. And she yeah. is an Orthodox Jew. Anna so, Nachman. Exactly. She, so, she went so, out early, earlier oh, than yeah, anyone. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't the only one. You had Natalie Rothschild and others speaking up yeah, too. Yeah. So you had a lot of Jewish women say, okay, we're not part of this. This is not a feminism we subscribe to. Katarina Janusz. She exactly. was pro Me Too first, and then first, she spoke then, to you for then, seconds. and Then she and I had a long conversation that she published, 
about the sexual nature of me too, about the sexual frustration. There's a driving force behind it. And she realized, oh my God, this is true. She's a sexologist and she's Jewish. And she realized this is a damn pogrom. This would no, do no good for women. And she turned against it. She was convinced yeah. through argumentation, which is what you should be. And suddenly when you arrive in early 2018, you discover that a maturity has started to arrive and there are public intellectuals speaking out against me too. And with Osa Lindebo, this, this magnificent Marxist woman, it was the stance that I've gone to work for 30 years. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite an eminent woman. I'm, I'm quite sexy, right? I don't let a man touch me. I don't buy into this idea of women being little princesses that need to be protected at all times who can speak for themselves. I don't buy into it at all. And I don't think women should isolate themselves in these close networks and, and, and you know, slander other men. They should speak out in the open. They should take the debate. They should bring them to justice, right? So suddenly you have this movement. And the... And I saw it coming because of the book fair debate before me to happen in Sweden. So Sweden is interesting as a landscape. You're now getting a new political landscape where there's a new public intellectual that they're ideologically foundational. They have a strong ideological foundation. And that foundation can be either social conservatism, meaning we need to save the institutions of society, we need to protect them, we need to save rule of law, and that's also free speech is important because they're tied together. Then you have the liberals, I said that I'm not going to be part of a lynch mob or any flock whatsoever. I can speak my own mind and everybody should be strong enough in our society, trained to be strong enough to speak their own mind in an open public discourse where we should be encouraged to have different opinions. That's can I liberal. be on that side? Yes, the liberal side. <laughs> yes, you're right. And you have the Marxists. And this is interesting. The Marxists do share the idea that there's structure in society. And they do share the conviction the structure is problematic. And also every also Marxist, regardless of what I think of Marxists, every Marxist understand that Marxism would never have triumphed if it wasn't for free speech. Exactly. Free speech is a prerequisite. Absolutely. Uh, they and the fought for free speech to win their war. And feminism couldn't have happened? No. So they really owe free speech quite a lot, and they're not being grateful. And please note something here. If feminism once had Marxist roots, it has lost its Marxist roots completely. Contemporary feminism is nothing but a petit bourgeois movement of offended petit bourgeois middle-class ladies who get offended by things and thinks because they get offended by things and because they're uneducated and lazy, they have the right to speak out against it and have it banned. And all men should run to their defense and use all the resources of society to make sure this here's, ban happens. Here's where we disagree, because, and I'll tell you why, I, and I know you hate it when I bring it up, the Communist Manifesto, because you don't consider it to be a true Marxist writing, you consider it to be Engels, right? And Marx basically just signed it. Marx signed it, so he is to blame. Yeah, it, I hold him it, it, responsible well, for it, but there is another Marx. Yeah, yes. I know, uh, but, but the most important thing is, if you look at modern feminism or gender feminism or third-wave feminism, there is uh, a certain trace of Marxism in it, and that's the triangle. Mm. Because they take out the, the class warfare triangle that Marx constructed, mm -hmm. and, and that's fine, because when you have income or ownership, those are not biological qualities. You can okay. change those qualities. Yes. If you live in an economically free society, you can move up and down. You can change your class. You always redistribute wealth in any society. Your own death is the redistribution of your own wealth. Precisely. The yes. problem is the feminists, they took this triangle, then they put in the variable of sex or gender. But that's what Marx did not allow. This Precis is where I'm a Marxist defending Marx against these feminists. That's exactly the break that it's not allowed. But so maybe you call it neo-Marxism, but it shouldn't be attached to Marx because Marx said class is the category that kills all other categories. 
It is the unifying category, meaning once you become a Marxist, all the other categories become subordinate to class. Which is meaning that meaning that, for example, a wealthy black lesbian is more powerful than a poor white heterosexual male. Exactly. She's uh, above him. That 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 is what class distinction is. If class distinction is based on money, and what I do in my work with Jan Sertikism, we do go Marxist. Is that we use the class category and say this is superior to other categories. We get rid of the other categories. That means that the the, the contemporary identity left is anti-Marxist. That's exactly what classical Marxists like Slavoj Žižek or also Lindeborg for that matter, hate the identitarians. And these days, the identitarians hate them back. The identitarians out there hate Slavoj Žižek as much as they hate Jordan Peterson, or hate me for that matter. They hate anybody who attacks identitarianism. Well, then there's identitarianism, which is their movement, which is not a leftist movement to begin with. No, but it's because just this much is right as it is left. Because this is the problem. When you, put, when, when you put in biological sex into the triangle, you yeah. put in a variable that isn't, it's nature given. It's not changeable. I mean, yeah. you can have a sex change operation if you want to, but you won't get, you know... Uh, We're not going to give sex hormones to masses of people, let's put it that way. So Actually, we, we are, are different. We yeah. are already doing that. But we, not on a massive scale. We are men and we are women, and 95% of us are very comfortable being men or being women, and they're different. Yes. If you look at populations, you discover that men and women are very different, have different roles in society. So anyway, that's what the feminists in Sweden did, and they were at the book fair. Yeah. Yeah. And But they are not Marxists, and this is where I have to defend Marx. They're Rousseauians. I always said the fight in the left in Europe in, in, in the 19th century was between Marx and Rousseau. And Marx has his roots in Hegel. So there's Hegelian dialectics in its pure materialistic version. That is the materialist version. That is, that is essentially what Marx is. So you can use Marx as a tool still. With Rousseau, there's no hope at all. It's, Rousseau is the problem, constantly is the problem. And what we're seeing today is that It's like if you think you want to be leftist because it's kind of cool, because you want to be on the side of the underdog, probably meaning you want to be an underdog yourself so you can always blame somebody else for your problems. So you're, you're tilted towards infantilizing yourself from the very beginning. You don't want to grow up. You want to stay an infantile. And also that's, that's... And then you want to be leftist because it's kind of cool instead of being right, okay? Then if you want to be leftist, then suddenly Rousseauism opens up that window. And what Rousseauism essentially says that is that, oh, we are different categories and all these categories are the same. Intersectionalism is modern Rousseauism in its purest form. It basically says that we cannot understand each other, but we're different categories. So we have different skin colors, we're different genders, we're different ages, we're different backgrounds, we're different hair colors, whatever you want to mean. So you have all these different things that you are. So it becomes a narcissistic obsession in being different from others. And this is individualism in its worst form. The individualism of a child in a grown-up body is pure narcissism. We call it hyper-narcissism in our work, John Sedekist and I. And the internet today is full of it. It's full of these people who scream for attention constantly, contribute absolutely nothing of value. There's nothing constructive about what they do. All they do is try to guilt and shame people into having to follow them and paying attention to them. And that's exactly when we're not aware of it. They actually go inside our skin and they force us to give away our resources to their mission. And their mission is only one. It is to ban, persecute and kill what I don't like. Yep. Remove it from you. Well, the removal from you is exactly what totalitarianism is. If you look at Stalin and Hitler, it is the clean street. 
They're talking about all the time. They're building an architecture with wide boulevards and no small streets so there can be no dirt. Have you been to Buenos Aires? Yeah, I've been to Buenos Aires, yes. Yes. So you know that unlike Brazil, Buenos Aires don't really have a problem with open favelas because they built a 20-meter-high wall uh, around their poor people, and they put all the poor people inside there. So you don't really see it in Argentina. But there are favelas nevertheless. Yes, and this is a perfect example of just, as we say in Sweden, sweeping the problem under the rug. You know, when you find, say, leftist female politicians who are against prostitution, because they find prostitution degrading to women, so it must be banned and disappeared. Well, maybe... The fact, though, is that some women become sex workers. And when you interview the sex workers and ask them, they just pragmatically say, well, I took the options I had in my life to support myself, and this was the least bad option. That's why I became a sex worker. Like you do whenever you take on a job. You say yes to your employment. You accept a job because this is the least bad offer you have. Otherwise, you take another job. Okay, It's called the labor market. So if you interview the sex worker, she would say, this was the least bad job I could have. So the question is then, why does this older leftist feminist politician woman, why is she so upset about prostitution when the sex worker herself is not obsessed about it? Well, you ask her what she wants you to do with prostitution. She says she doesn't really care whether it disappears or not. She does. She only wants it to disappear from her view. Meaning if the sex worker is forced online, or forced into back street somewhere where that sex worker becomes insecure and becomes completely dependent on a pimp or a madam, and suddenly he's exposed to violence and becomes raped constantly, she doesn't care. She doesn't care about her sisters. She does not care about other women. She's a cold bitch. She cares about she her own... She only cares about her own view. Yeah. This is what fascism is. This is just a female form of fascism. It's like, I don't want to see it. Please clean it away from my street. Use all the tax money that you take from mothers, not me. Use all the financial resources of the state. Build a strong state to begin with. And then order the state to clean the streets away. So you don't have these young girls walking down the street tempting my husband to have sex with them so that I can control him. But that's also... This is the power game that's going on. It's really shitty and nasty. And it's pretending to be feminist. But it's also so... It isn't. It's also so interesting because they're building a strong state at the same time as they're building a weak state. It's like they're building a big state but a weak state. Because they take away the police, they take away the justice system, they completely disband the army, and then it's all gender studies and pedagogy and nothing works. But mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big state, but it's not a strong state. But they don't care whether it works or not, because the problem is that when large groups of women gather, they have to understand that the inner circuit, which they're born to understand and comprehend, and which they are educated to understand and comprehend, which they do well. The inner circuit is how you run a daycare center. You put the kids in a group, and you teach the kids to listen to each other, because kids have nothing to say. They don't have any substance to their arguments. So when kids are going to get along, you essentially teach the kids, no, 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 let him speak, let her speak. Don't be shy any longer, come forward. This is brilliant in a daycare center. Yes. Women do that wonderfully. But that's how you run the inner circuit. This is also how women relate to each other when they're social. When you put a bunch of women around a table and start observing them and they drink a glass of wine and they start conversations, if somebody says something's wrong or is actually factually incorrect about something, nobody speaks out against that. Nobody does. Did you let her say it? 
When she leaves the room and she goes to the bathroom, then you backstab her and say, oh, did you hear what she just said? Okay, because you use her mistake as a tool against her. This is a power game that's going on between women. That's how the inner circuit operates. And I'm not saying this to be evil to women. I'm saying it because it works. It works as long as you're inside the inner circuit. That means as long as you're in an environment with women and children, this strategy works. Now, the problem is when women then walk out into business and they walk into industry and they walk into politics and they walk into law, and they walk into all these areas that have been dominated as by they men should. before. You know, as they should. These are environments where the patriarchy is ruled, the matriarchy has been lacking. We should have women there. But they then take this attitude with them. So they don't, they don't hold you responsible for what you say. So instead, they hold you responsible for your tonality, for your etiquette. So they don't actually argue with you. So when you say something to disagree with, they don't actually disagree with you, which they should. No, no, you don't get the open disagreement so you can improve in your argument, so you can actually even change your mind. No, you don't get that. What you get is that you get attacked for the tonality of the way you're presenting yourself. And then they say, well, you talk too much now, so you should keep your mouth shut because somebody else should be allowed to talk, which is like what you do in a daycare center with three-year-olds. Yeah. But if you do this with 33-year-olds and public discourse, it is disastrous. So this is the replacement of the inner circuit, conquering the outer circuit, taking with it its mythology from the inner circuit and putting it into the outer circuit. And then suddenly you get the hunting team that isn't out hunting. You get the warrior team that isn't out defending the border. They're sitting in a ring and they're sitting singing to a guitar and they're having endless meetings, making sure that everybody's seen and heard, like if they were children. And they're castrated. They're castrated. That's exactly what Sweden could possibly only defend itself for three or four days. It was attacked by a foreign power. It is a completely castrated culture. It's feminized. And women are not to blame for this. Men are equally to blame for this, for not being aware of it. Because if we had understood from the very beginning and explained to women that certain environments operate better as outer circuit. I certain environments operate better as inner circuit. Don't try to take matrical forms of organization and put them in the patriarchy. Don't take patrical, phallic forms of organization and put them inside the matriarchy. Because if you take a phallic organization, how you organize a hunting team, and try to organize that with three-year-olds, you get Lord of the Flies. Yes, I should just point out that you just revealed to a potential dictator listening that he could invade our countries in four days. Alexander is obviously right about this, but you should know if you plan to invade us that after you occupy us, you have to deal with our feminists, so don't. Well, I think any foreign power would quite easily. I think the Swedes are incapable of doing it. Yeah. Because actually feminists calm down like all women do. So suddenly law and order is actually introduced. Because women the feminists... get nervous when men are not doing what they're supposed to do. So even if women want to control men and castrate them, the... The outcome is not good for women at all. And the first sign of that is that women are no longer fucked. It's in the bedroom that a woman discovers that she's created a monster. She's created a man who's no longer a man. And she wants a man in the bedroom. All women do. And they deserve it. But that's where they, that's where they see the real tragedy. So the tragedy in, in your face, thrown in your face, if you're a Swedish woman today, is that you probably don't have a very good sex life at all. And you deserve better. But it's because if you castrated all the men to begin with, well... Any man who comes out of gender studies departments and quotes everything correctly and has now become ideologically correct is going to be terrible in bed. So in a sense, we've come full circle here because we were wondering why is Sweden going to shit? Yeah. Or we're just basically stating Sweden is going to shit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's fairly simple. It's, um, 
a lack of libido. A lack of libido. And lack of libido is because patriarchy is weak and matriarchy is non-existent. We need a strong matriarchy and a strong patriarchy. We need strength. We need strong women and strong men. And I can tell you, a strong woman who has sex with a strong man, that's good sex. And that's exactly why it works. And they have healthy children that they foster to become children to then become grown-ups. And that's the whole process that was absolutely natural, given in the original nomadic tribe. We now live in a modern society which is so alienated from its original nomadic life that it doesn't even understand itself. This is where civilization has failed us. This is why Freud wrote a magnificent book called Civilization and Its Discontents. And all John Sedeckvist and I have done with our book, Digital Libido, essentially we've rewritten Civilization's Discontents. You could also call the book Digital Civilization and Its Discontents because it's exactly what we write about today. We need to redo Freud's work that he did for the industrial age. We need to redo his work today for the digital age and understand that the internet is fostering us in the wrong direction. We're mixing up childhood and adulthood in the most destructive way possible. And you need to keep childhood and adulthood separate. They're only steps on a journey, which is journey towards your completion. And on that note, we're taking a break. Thank you for listening to The Aryan and the Jew. I am Aaron Flam. You have been listening to Alexander Bard, and he has just released his latest book, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, together with Jan Söderqvist. I want to sincerely thank you who supports this podcast on Patreon, where you can find us as The Aryan and the Jew. Until next time, have a good unit of time. <laughs>